I'm sure you can identify with this statement. Life can be full and life can be fragile. Life can be full and life can be fragile. Another long day at the job, another hectic week at home, another heavy email in the inbox, another hard conversation with a family member, another heart-wrenching goodbye to a close friend, another injury or sickness you have to bear up, or even just that annoying and frustrating reminder that you're getting older. Have you ever found that we get injured by doing things that are not athletic or all that great the older we get? You know, that's just a yearly reminder we're getting older. And here we are at the end of 2023. I mean, think about this year for yourself. Maybe spend the next week doing that. 2023 was a blank year for me. What would you put in that blank? Jacob has a grunt. (laughs) Was it an exciting year? An energizing year? Or was it an exhausting year? A disappointing year that you're glad you're done with? Was 2023 a year that was life-changing or life-crushing? Was it delightfully better than you had anticipated? Or maybe something far less? Or was it a mixture of a year? You know, a mixture of sorrows and joys. A mixture of perplexity and confusion on the one hand, as well as a revealing and clarity on the other hand. Truth be told, everyone's life this morning may be in different stages. Some of us are on mountaintops. Life couldn't get any better. And some of us are in valleys, wondering if it will ever get better. And then some of us are just somewhere in between. Friends, that's what makes being members of a local church a unique but strangely comforting experience. When we gather together as one body, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, we join up our lives together and we become what the Bible says is equally yoked. We are committed to the same mission, committed to caring for one another. We are then able to comfort others in their sufferings with the comfort that we have received in our own sufferings. Friends, just kind of like an easy bottom shelf application, a trial you might be facing today or even this past year could very well be a source of comfort and wisdom for someone else's trial one year from now. That's why we shouldn't waste our trials We should redeem them and behold our God and learn what he's trying to teach us. Do you recall even what Paul said to the Christians in Corinth? How we should not waste our trials, but we should also lean in and lean on one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So friends, that's why it's a joy to be a member of a local church because some of us are on mountaintops and some of us are in valleys and God has uniquely put us together to both comfort and encourage, but also to remind us and instruct us regardless of where we're at today. But friends, let's go ahead and be honest. Regardless of where you're at, we live in a world that is often dark and perplexing. It's okay to acknowledge that. 
and not be in denial. It's okay to say things like, wow, life is hard. Friends, we should recognize that from history, but also in the present. I mean, if you just take a cursory reading of history, think of even the dark days of the concentration camps in Germany during World War II. Go visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or read about the inhumane genocides of Somalia over the last 30 to 35 years. Or just turn on the nightly news right now. Read most social media feeds today, and you and I can see that something just ain't right with this world. It is messed up. And friends, it's not just turning on TVs. It's not just looking out there. It's actually looking inside where we see something that's messed up. There's darkness inside us, evil and pain that touches us right where we're at. Pain in this world, friends, is though it may feel common and normal, this is not how it's always been. You see, last week we studied John 1, 1 to 18, where we were led back to the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember the first page in our Bibles? The first verse in our Bibles, what it says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the completion of his creation, we read in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. No mentioning of darkness, no mentioning of pain, no mentioning of sorrow or evil. Man and woman were in perfect fellowship with God and in perfect fellowship with one another. It was really, for the first time, and I would say truly, heaven on earth for the first married couple. Yet as you read the next chapters after the creation account, that perfect fellowship was severed. Two weeks ago, we were looking together at this in this little three-part mini-series, starting with Genesis chapter 3, where we see sin enter into the human experience for the very first time. And then we had that one glimmer of hope, that one glimmer of hope God gave us right there in the darkness of the garden, the proto-evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel right there in the garden. God gave Adam and Eve clear instructions on how to steward his creation and enjoy his good gifts, but they, they did not do what he asked them to do. What did he ask them to do? What did he command them to do? Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But instead of listening to the voice of God, they listen to the voice of the serpent. Instead of Adam leading his wife Eve, shepherding her heart, protecting her life, fearing God more than fearing his wife, he instead became passive. He abdicated his God-given role. He was deferential to a fault. And the responsibility he was uniquely commanded by God to heed, Adam failed to do. And as a result, a vacuum of leadership was left open and unoccupied. So what happened? That crafty serpent, Satan, working through a talking snake, was able to appeal to Eve's desire for what was forbidden for her and Adam to do. And slowly but surely, discontentment set in. Envy set in. Selfish ambition set in. And the opportunity of a lifetime, or so it seemed, was put before Eve, and what happened? Well, she believed a half-truth, which would only lead to a full-court downfall. 
a lifetime of regret. The woman listened to the serpent and she led her husband into sin. The first marriage conflict was thus born. The first relationship breakdown was birth. The first family split and pain-filled division had fractured and shattered what God made very good. The woman listened to the serpent. The man listened to his wife, and neither of them listened to God. Friends, we discover in Genesis 3 the root of the vast majority of our relationship problems today. In society in the family, and even in the church. The lie that Adam and Eve bought that day eventually led them to a debt before God they can never pay themselves, a debt that we too cannot pay for ourselves either. And friends, that's what Genesis 3 was telling us. Because of the fall, because of man's sin and rebellion against God, pain, sorrow, and hardship has touched marriage, our personhood, work, Everything. So much that the wages of our sin is death. That's why we die. Every obituary you read, every funeral we attend, it is a result of our first parents rebelling against our good God. But it's not just the physical death that happened that day. They didn't even die in that same day. It was a spiritual death that was started on the inside. And the Bible says, ever since then, we are all born spiritually dead, separated from God, loving ourselves and hating our good God. Friends, this is our most ancient problem. This is our oldest problem that goes all the way back to our first parents. Friends, whatever contemporary circumstances right now that are hard for you and I, you can trace its root all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, somewhere along the way. So what's the answer? If there was a glimmer of hope in the garden that a seed of a woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, when would he come and what would he come to do? If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Last week, we were in this little mini-series leading up to Christmas, looking at John 1, really the entire chapter. Last week, we were in verses 1 to 18, so if you weren't here with us, or you were here but kind of half awake, half asleep, and need to be refreshed and revived on what we learned, you can look back at John 1, 1 to 18 on the sermon podcast online. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at the remainder of this chapter, verses 19 to 51. And differently than what I normally do, I usually read the entire passage in one sitting. That's usually what I do. This morning, due to the nature of how it's divided up, I'm going to read the first half, and we're going to expound on that for basically three-fourths of the sermon, and then one-fourth of the sermon will finish off of those last 15 verses. Sound good? All right, here we go. John 1. We're going to look at verses 19 to 34 to start off with. John 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, 
What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word. I have two points in the form of questions this morning. I'll give you the first point up front, just as a forewarning. The first point is much longer than the second with regards to how much time we spend on it. You're welcome. Question number one. What is God's only provision to the world's most ancient problem? What is God's only provision to the world's most ancient problem? After introducing us to Jesus as the eternal word who became flesh, which we looked at last week in verses 1 to 18, the Apostle John begins to describe for us some of the earliest days of Jesus' public ministry. But before we get to Jesus' public ministry, the Apostle John first sets the stage by introducing us to another person in John chapter 1, a man that was sent from God to bear witness to Jesus in the midst of this cold-hearted world. We read this last week. You can glance down with me. We were introduced to him briefly, John 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The man sent from God to bear witness to God's only solution to the world's most ancient problem was a man named John, John the Baptist. And starting in verse 19 is the first section that reveals to us in John's gospel the testimony of John the Baptist. So for a judge or a lawyer that would listen to this sermon, we might call this a public hearing of John the Baptist, taking the stand. Or maybe for those working in journalism or media, you could even say John was at a press conference where he would have to answer questions from the religious leaders 
who had questions about his identity and his ministry. We read in verse 19 again, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So who is John the Baptist? Well, the apostle John doesn't give us a lot of background on him, but our friends, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their gospels, they do. So just to be fair to John the Baptist's ministry here this morning, it's good for us to be refreshed and reminded, who is this man sent from God to prepare the way for the Lord? John the Baptist was a prophet or an authoritative messenger sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were foretold by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 that he would be great before the Lord filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke 1, 15 to 17. Uh, John also calls him a burning and shining light, a shining lamp, John five thirty five says that would bear witness to the enduring hope, the only enduring hope that the world would ever have, a world played by darkness and cold-hearted unbelief. John Baptist came to bear witness not to a light, but the light. John was to be like a flashlight pointing us to the lighthouse. John said earlier in verses 4 and 9, he was called to bear witness to the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. And who is that light who was coming into the world? Well, as we already discovered in last week, he's the eternal word who always was, verse 1. The word who was always with God, verses 1 and 2. Then in verse 3, it says that the word was the agent through which the world was created. And then John tells us that the word stepped down into time and human history. The eternal Son of God became incarnate. Verse 14, he would display the radiance of the glory of God, the the one who, verse 18 says, would interpret, explain, exegete, and reveal God to us in human flesh. In short, Jesus came to reveal who God is in living flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. This is who John the Baptist was called to bear witness to. Friends, what a high calling. You know, some of us might get a new job and we get a fancy kind of label on the desk with our name on it and we think we're something. Or we might get a promotion at work and we start walking in with a strut, you know? John the Baptist was called by Yahweh, almighty, eternal, everlasting God, to bear witness to the long-awaited Messiah. That's weighty. And friends, the higher the calling is from God, the greater the preparation will be that God forms in a person to get them ready. Friends, have you been asking the Lord lately in your life? Lord, what do you want me to do next in my life? 
Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What is my calling? What is my purpose? What is it you want me to do next, Lord? Brothers and sisters, whatever it is the Lord has planned for you and I, you can guarantee this. You can take it to the bank. God is always first in the business of forming godly character and godly convictions in us before he gives us something new to do. Some of us are anxious for tomorrow because we're trying to fast forward the sanctification process. The Lord is not in a hurry to take us out of the oven. He don't want a half-baked cake. He wants us robustly flavor, flavoring. He wants us beautiful in his sight, and he will keep us in the fiery furnace for as long as he desires to melt off that dross so that our faith would be pure and beautiful in his sight. Friends, that's exactly what's going on in John's life before he takes the scene here. God is working in us, even in our waiting upon him. So what kind of upbringing and preparation did God have to do to get John ready for such a lofty task? Well, first of all, John's a unique cat. He's a unique dude. This dude grew up in the backwoods of Judea. You know, you ever saw him, man, I grew up in the sticks. Well, John the Baptist can beat you on that one. He was being prepared by God in the backwoods in the wilderness of Judea. And this dude was really strange. I mean, if he had a yearbook kind of, um, well, he, he would be an odd-looking cat in the yearbook. He would get an award. I'm not sure what I would call him. But he had an interesting diet and an interesting taste of fashion. In other words, he didn't exactly shop at the Gap, drink bougie coffee, or eat the Whole30 diet. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Though he was odd in appearance, friends, what drew the attention of the crowds was not the way he looked, but by how boldly he preached. Friends, that's what happens when bold preaching begins. The people will come to hear. and They will come to hear for mixed motives. In fact, the Bible says that King Herod was pretty impressed with him. Ironically, King Herod is the one who had him beheaded eventually. But it says in the Gospels that King Herod feared John because he knew John to be a righteous and holy man. Friends, there is something powerful about bold preaching from a righteous and godly man. And the message of John's ministry was direct and straightforward. He didn't have any sugarcoat kind of entry-level sermons to kind of get the church to like him. No, he went right for the gills. Repent and be forgiven of your sins or be warned for the wrath of God is coming. I mean, that's his kind of opening commissioning sermon. So when John entered his public ministry, he began proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why is that significant? This odd, strange, bold, backwoods preacher prepared by God, preaching repentance. Why is that significant to the audience he was preaching to? Friends, he was speaking to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, people who had the law, who had the synagogue, who had been taught and told 
about Moses and the Exodus and the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. You see, friends, Israel was God's firstborn and chosen people, Exodus chapters 4 and 9 tell us. But friends, over a period of time, they began to be a very dark and dim community. They gave lip service to God, but were living spiritually fruitless lives. They were spiritually, spiritually bankrupt in their relationship with God. Which means we too, beloved, should be very careful about knowing lots of Bible and knowing little of the God of the Bible. We should be warned by the failures of the history of Israel in our contemporary time. Friends, being religious is not the same as being regenerate. Being religious is not the same as being regenerate. Being a nice person or a good citizen is not the same thing as being a genuine Christian whose citizenship is in heaven. We can be born into a Christian family, yes. We can be born into a Christian subculture, yes. But we must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Growing up in America ain't going to get you to the pearly gates. Growing up in a preacher's home could actually be more judgment upon you if you don't believe what the preacher said. Kids, that's why it's so important that as you come to church, you have to decide to follow Jesus for yourself. Learn from your mom and dad. Listen to the preacher. But you must choose Jesus Christ for yourself. No one will go into heaven on the coattails of someone else's faith. And that goes for everyone here. Whether you're a member here, a visitor, a family member, or a friend of a member, don't leave here today deceiving yourselves, as we all can, thinking I'm okay with God because I know some Bible verses, I said a prayer, and I walked down an aisle one day. We could have been dunked in water, but we have not been baptized in the Spirit. And friends, we need to be careful. Do we know Jesus personally for ourselves? Do we know the Christ that we speak of this Christmas season? Friends, we should all examine our life and examine the claims of Jesus and ask, have I given my whole life to him? Or am I holding on to my life? What did Jesus say? If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. Friends, may that be true of all of us, that we would give our life away, that we might find life in Christ. So as John the Baptist's ministry grew, it became more popular and well-known, there were people undone and convicted by what he preached. And they began to think, wait, are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've waited on? That's why in John 1, 20 to 21, the Jewish leaders, the, those sent from the priests, the Levites, really from the Pharisees, they were sneaky and tricky trying to send people to do some of their dirty work. They wanted to know who exactly is this strange, weird, prophetic, and bold preacher. So who was it that the crowds were flocking out to? Listen again to this conversation or this press conference in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
John quickly dismissed all three identifications. I am not the Christ. I'm not the long-awaited Messiah. I'm not even Elijah either. I'm not a reincarnated prophet from the Old Testament. And I'm not the prophet. I'm a prophet, but not the prophet. The one spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 who would speak the very words of God. You know what basically John says? You got the wrong guy. You could check my ID, my driver's license, my passport, my birth certificate. That ain't me, y'all. Oh, friends, what a good word for us all here this morning. We all have a tendency for hero worship. We have a tendency when God uses someone to actually begin to think of them as if, are they the Christ? No, we would never say such blasphemous words. But sometimes our actions can show we do. You know what a humble person posture is? You need to listen to me only in so far as you are hearing Christ through me. Otherwise, tune me out. Friends, that's a good word for all of us. We must decrease, Christ must increase. Check everything someone teaches you and preaches to you, even if they've been greatly used by God in your life. Check it with the scriptures. None of us are the Messiah. There's only one. As you can imagine, John's answer left them dumbfounded. Well, I mean, who, who on earth are you, dude? Who is this strange eating, weird dressing, living in the backwards of Judea, bold, preacher of repentance so they asked him again in verse 25 then why are you baptizing if you are neither the christ nor elijah nor the prophet john then clarifies for them the purpose of his baptism and its inferiority to the one who would come after him look what he says in verses 26 and 27 i baptize with water but among you stands one you do not know even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Again, look at verses 30 and 31. John 1, 30 and 31. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, the Jews, they were familiar with proselyte baptisms. Baptism was not a new and novel idea to them. There was a baptism that Jewish people went through as an initiation rite, as they converted to Judaism. But here, John is telling these Jews, who had many of them already received proselyte baptism and the circumcision of the flesh, he was telling them, the religious elite, to repent and be baptized by him in preparation for the one who was to come to save them of their sins. You see, John was calling them to renounce their false assurance of salvation. They were claiming they were God's children simply because they were Jewish, because they were descendants of Abraham. And instead, John was doing what every faithful preacher, pastor, and parent must do. Don't put your assurance in who you were raised by and what church you went to. You need to put your assurance of salvation in the one who was to come after him the Messiah, the one who would redefine and reconstitute who the children of God really are. So who did John the Baptist say that he was? I mean, he is somebody. He said no to everybody at the press conference. If John was not the anointed one, 
then who is he? Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Did you notice what John says about himself? He says, this is the summation of why I have been sent of God. I am the voice preparing people for the Lord. Here John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 that Grant read earlier as a fulfillment of the prophetic office that he would assume to prepare the way for the Messiah that would come. Who John the Baptist says is the Lord. Speaking of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, our creator God himself. You see, in Isaiah chapters 40, if you've never read the book of Isaiah and you're starting that in a quiet time, let me just give you a forewarning. The first 39 chapters are checkered largely with sin and judgment, okay? Have a buddy help you read through it. It gets a little rough at times. You get lost in the weeds. But then chapter 40 comes and a hinge turns. A microphone gets brought to the voice of our God. And then these words of comfort, these words of hope, these words of a greater and new exodus for the people of God on a worldwide scale is still yet to come. An exodus that would come about through the arrival of the root of Jesse, a descendant of David, Isaiah 11 verse 1 says. One that the Spirit of God would anoint to bring forth justice to the nations, Isaiah 42, 1 says. One who would bring forth good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives, Isaiah 61, verse 1 says. The one who would also be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who would suffer and die under the judgment of God for the sins of his people. Friends, all of Isaiah is pointing to this one person fulfilling all the offices the anointed prophet, this reigning king, this suffering servant would save a people for himself and one day establish the new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65 and 66, where the dwelling place of God is with man forever. A timeless place, a sinless place where God would wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. A place where the curses of Genesis 3 would finally and forever be reversed and permanently removed. Isaiah 40 verse 3, beloved, is describing that the promise God would be fulfilled through John's ministry. Yahweh would come down. He would condescend to the bottom shelf and he would become like us. The seed of the woman who was prophesied to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3 is also the word who became flesh, John 1. Emmanuel, Matthew 1, God with us. The same one, John said, he saw the Spirit descend upon and remain, verse 32, the one and only Son of God, verse 34. Friends, don't miss this. This is also the one, he says back in verse 29, who would be the sole provision for the world's most ancient problem. Look at me at verse 29. John 1 verse 29. The next day he saw 
Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, what is the world's most ancient problem? How would God answer that question this morning? Well, it's sin. It's the sin of the world. The very reason the Lamb of God came was to take away the sin of the world. Sin, friends, is everything that our God hates. It's everything his wrath and justice is against. Consider Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, sin is not just a, a, an uh-oh, a mistake. Sin is rebellion. It's cosmic treason against God. The creature acting as if we are God rather than the creator is. Friends, sin is our love for self that triumphs over our love for God. Sin is our ongoing, relentless, and daily attempt to pursue and live out our natural inclinations to live how we want to live, talk how we want to talk, get whatever we want to get, regardless of whatever God has said. Friends, sin is not just pushing God's boundaries, it's running over them. Sin is pushing the mute button on listening to God's voice and turning up the volume to do whatever our selfish desires want. One theologian has said this, quote, sin is not an innocent shortfall, but a toxic and damning condition of guilt before God. But our sin against God is our most fundamental and the world's most ancient problem. So if you take a poll from your neighbors on your street, or from colleagues at work, or students in the classroom, or maybe even if you are bold, and I pray that you would be at least once, with your family and friends, your unbelieving family and friends, just strike up a conversation in something like this. What do you think is the biggest problem human beings face today? What is our biggest problem in society? If you asked any one of those people that question, how do you think they would answer? What do you think would be at the top of the list? I could probably assume you'd probably hear things like this. An economic crisis. Political unrest. Global warming. Gun laws. Immigration policies. Poor education. Poverty. Drug addiction. Alcohol abuse. Marital infidelity. And friends, I want to acknowledge all those things are problems. They're big problems. Those are problems that we should be educated more about. If we're going to be an intelligent, educated, prudent, and bright witness for King Jesus in a real world, we're going to have to come face to face with real problems. Some of you work in jobs where you're on the front line and you see these every day. Uh, whether you're a doctor, teacher, coach, business owner, friends, you're not wasting your life. You are used of God in some way to, to increase human flourishing, to increase education, 
to prescribe and rightly diagnose people's physical ailments, to provide jobs for people who need jobs to work. Friends, many of you even work in jobs, or you could be, that might be in the military, a police officer, a judge, a lawyer. All those jobs are pushing back evil, at least seeming to restrain evil. So whether it's using your hands to cut grass, empty trash, using your intellect or expertise to revise public policies or crunching numbers at the computer, working in healthcare, repairing roofs, caring for an aging spouse or parent, raising children at home, working efficiently in a factory, or supervising employees with organization and productivity. Whatever we do, we do it unto the Lord. He's the one we're aiming to please in this real world with real problems for the sake of his glory, loving our neighbor, and increasing human flourishing. You're not wasting your life. But beloved, if we think that these external challenges and human felt needs are our greatest problem, then we undermine the chief reason Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? What's the central message of Christmas really all about? John said this of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. In the Greek, it literally means God's Lamb. It's His sacrificial provision. It's His Lamb. He provided this Lamb. He's made sure it's unblemished. And He's made sure it will be the remedy and the solution for the world's greatest problem. What is the world's greatest problem? To take away the sin of the world. Friends, if sin is not the world's most ancient and greatest problem, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was heaven's biggest mistake. If sin were not that big of a deal, then why did it take the Son of God to be crushed under the wrath of God to atone for our sin? All sin is heinous before the eyes of God, so heinous that only the perfect Son of God could pay for it in full. You see, Jesus was not mistaken about why he came. He was not unclear why he came to this earth. He revealed multiple times throughout his ministry why he came. Come back tonight for our Christmas Eve service as our brother Alan will be teaching from 1 Timothy 1. You'll hear very clear and loud what Paul said Jesus' purpose was for coming. But to hear it from our Lord's mouth himself, if we had the press conference putting Jesus on trial, put a microphone on his mouth, Jesus, why did you come? What is so great about your arrival? Listen to these words. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or consider even the night before our Lord was betrayed. He's there having the Passover with his own disciples. The Passover, as you may recall from Exodus 12, was that feast that annual feast that reminded the Jewish people of God's powerful deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
In addition to eating unleavened bread, Moses instructed them that each house was to take a young, unblemished lamb and kill it at twilight. They were to take some of the bread, of blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they ate. But for what purpose? Why go to all this trouble with bread and blood? God says in Exodus 12, 12 and 13, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, it was the blood that was the symbolic covering of God's mercy on their home as they would be spared of God's judgment to come. Upon seeing the blood, the Lord would then pass over them, sparing them. This annual reminder would be fresh, freshly reminded of what they deserve, but how merciful God has been to them. So as Jesus here is taking the bread there at this Passover, and he's instituting what he would now call, and the apostles would call, the Lord's Supper, it would have been on the forefront of their minds when Jesus said these words, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when John calls at the very first days of his ministry, when Jesus shows up, the Lamb of God, John was saying, attention world, the true and final Passover Lamb has come. The perfect once for all sacrifice, the book of Hebrews calls it, to cover the sin of all God's people of all time. His perfect unblemished, obedient, flawless life made him the perfect sacrifice on the cross to rescue us, to protect us from the wrath of God coming upon the world. Maybe you're new to church or maybe you've grown up in church, but you've never thought through some of the things we say and sing about. Have you ever wondered why Christians speak so much about the blood of Christ? I mean, if you're new to Christianity, okay, I've witnessed to a lot of lost people, and you start talking about the blood of Christ, they're going to go, whoa, bro, I'm out. That's weird. I mean, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's creepy, y'all. If you have no biblical context, I don't want to be baptized in nobody's blood. But when real Christians understand what they're singing, it brings them joy. So why do we cherish? Why do we celebrate? Why are we unashamed of the blood of Christ? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, the blood of Christ gives us unending peace with God. The blood of Christ gives us unending peace with God. So in Romans 5, Paul's going to sandwich. He's going to give us kind of a bookended promise Drawing the connection between faith and the blood. Listen, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he builds the argument. Listen to Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, it's the blood of Christ shed for you. Shed for me that will make it well with our soul. I want to sing on my deathbed, it is well, it is well. And I want people to remind me if my mind goes bad and I start having dementia, Blake, remember the blood. And those promises will come back. And the same goes for us. Friends, do you doubt having peace with God today? Then remember the blood of Christ. Do you wonder if God is for you or against you? Remember the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what gives us unending peace with God. Number two, the blood of Christ motivates us to resist and flee temptation. The blood of Christ motivates us to resist and flee from temptation. Remember 1 Peter 1? We've gone through 1 Peter for the last year and a half or so. Peter says, be holy in all your conduct as the Lord is holy, right? To conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. But why? What is the motivating factor to live a holy and set-apart life for Jesus? 1 Peter 1 verse 19, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or think about even sexual temptation. Paul's whole argument of why not to sin against your body sexually. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, flee sexual immorality and glorify God with how you treat your body for you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. His life in exchange for ours. So when you're tempted to look at pornography, tempted to harm yourself, tempted to lie on your tax return, tempted to hide secrets from your spouse, tempted to lash out in anger at your children, tempted to harder bitterness toward your boss, tempted to gossip at work, tempted to grow bitter towards a friend, what should we do? Lord, I'm not going to fill in the blank because Christ's blood was shed for me. Covenant eyes will not be strong enough. Accountability partners, though good, won't be strong enough. A small group won't be strong enough. You need something stronger. When you're all alone in your temptation, you need the only power that can resist any temptation, and that is the blood of Christ. How do we know that? If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, the Spirit was a gift to you purchased by the blood of Christ. You can resist the deeds of the flesh and you can escape the snares of the devil. Remember the blood. And then the third reason we should remember the blood, the blood of Christ encourages us with hope when we do sin. The blood of Christ encourages us with hope when we do sin. 
1 John 1, listen to verses 7 and 9. Notice the argument he makes. 1 John 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice what cleanses us. If we say we have no sin, we're a good person, we're A-OK, we have no blemishes on our life, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, when we do sin, and we will, we should remember the blood. That's why we should also make it a point to come to the Lord's Supper every month. Friends, we come to the Lord's Supper not because we're good enough, but recognizing we're not, but He is. The Lord's Supper is a reminder not to condemn us, but to refresh us as we remember what Christ has done for us. As we remember taking part in the bread and the juice, not in any way cleansing us from our sin, but reminding us of the blood that does. Friends, that's why church discipline in barring unrepentant church members who call themselves Christians from the table is a way of God waking up our sinfulness. Not to judge us, but to wake us up. Because sin is costly. Sin is deadly. And we need to listen to Christ's warnings. The closer we walk with Christ, the more we will hate our sin. The longer we drift away from Christ, the more normal and comfortable we become with our sin. How can any of us go on living in sin if Christ is living in us? May it not be so. But then in verse 33, as Jesus has been proclaimed as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, John says that when Jesus would come, Jesus would baptize his followers not merely in water, but with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God who powerfully comes to dwell in us. Which brings us to our second and final point. Told you we'd get there. Question number two, what is God's plan for expanding Christianity throughout the world? What is God's plan for expanding Christianity throughout the world? Follow with me, starting in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by, said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. 
He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In this section, the Apostle John gives us a description of the first meet and greet in the lobby. Welcome and greeter team. Between Jesus and his earliest followers, the disciples, they were later called the Twelve or the Twelve Apostles. But here in John's Gospel, we see a glimpse. We get to listen in on one of the first interactions that Jesus has with his earliest disciples and how they began to understand him. And then, friends, as we look at this passage, I want to make a few observations from the text and draw out some principles for us to consider. Here's some different observations. In verses 35 to 36, at the sight of Jesus, John the Baptist does again what he's already done. He directs two of his disciples towards Jesus. I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy. Him, Andrew, and most likely Apostle John are there. And John tells them both explicitly, this is the Lamb of God I've been telling you about. Then verse 37 says, did you notice there? I love this phrase. And they followed Jesus. After hanging out with Jesus for a little while, verses 40 to 42 says that Andrew then finds his brother Simon Peter and he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus calls him by name and then renames him Cephas, which means rock or stone, most likely emphasizing what Jesus will make of Peter in his latter days. Nonetheless, Jesus eventually finds Philip, verse 43, who was probably friends with Andrew and Peter being they were both from Bethsaida, verse 44. Philip then finds Nathanael, who was likely the disciple called Bartholomew and other gospel accounts, and encourages him to go and meet Jesus. Then the interaction between Nathanael and Jesus gets a little more interesting. And Philip tells Nathanael that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures who they were pointing to. And Nathanael is quite shocked. Ha! Huh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, what if someone said that about where you're from? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Georgia or D.C. or Lavaca? No offense to the Lavakians. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Being that Nazareth was a small and obscure town, he didn't immediately connect the dots of how this could be true. However, Jesus affirms his integrity to speak with honesty, verse 47. Then Jesus began speaking in ways to Nathaniel that left him in awe. Jesus knew more about Nathanael in a few seconds than Nathanael would know about Jesus for a lifetime. Nathanael then declares that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that he truly is the King of Israel, verse 49. 
Then in 50 and 51, Jesus says to Nathanael and to the other disciples, they will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here, Jesus is alluding back to Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob, who would later be named Israel, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel would come, Jacob had a dream. The dream was about a ladder reaching to heaven and God confirming his promises that he made with Abraham and manifesting his presence there. Jacob names the place Bethel. Don't go listen to their music, just stick with what the Bible teaches. Bethel, which means house of God. Jesus takes this dream along with the title of the Son of Man, aiming to connect the dots for the disciples. And here Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. I'm greater than Jacob, who was named Israel by God. I am the presence of God in human flesh. I am the presence made known ultimately through Jacob's dream with angels ascending and descending on a ladder back to heaven. Friends, the ladder is the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the only mediator by which we can be reconciled to God. And the angels ascend and descend at Jesus' bidding. In Jesus, we meet the incarnate Son of God, the true Israel, whom God's abiding presence is among his people. So what do we gain? What do we gather from this first meet and greet between Jesus and his disciples? What does Jesus, being the Lamb of God, have to do with Jesus' pursuit of these men? Jesus had a mission to go to Calvary. Yes, amen, hallelujah, take nothing from it. But Jesus also did many other things while he was on earth. And friends, this is going to answer the question that will be answered at the end of all the Gospels. How will God, what is his plan for spreading Christianity, the message about Jesus, to all the earth? Let me make it even more relevant how do we at CCBC participate in what God is doing starting right here in the River Valley? Well, friends, it first begins with each one of us coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus ourselves. Friends, do you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you see yourself not as good but wretchedly bad before a holy God? Do you see your life as one that is plagued by pain, uncertainty, duress, and stress? Do you live in a world that it just ain't right? These are God's way. It is his siren to wake us up to our biggest and most ancient problem, which is our sin against God, and to give us hope that there has been a remedy, a solution, a lamb provided as a sacrifice for our sin. Christ, the true Israel, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the presence of God in human flesh has come to rescue us, redeem us. Listen, to take away our sin guilt from our record, and here's where it's going to hit, and to take away the sin inside of each one of us. The gospel is good news, not just because we get a clean record. The gospel is the good news because Jesus is stronger and can wrestle me down. 
I need a Savior who can throw down my sinful flesh and cause me to have life in Him. And that's the Jesus we worship this morning. He came to take away our sin guilt and He came to take away our sinful desires to free us from the tyranny of deception. So friends, that is good news. And that good news cannot be kept to ourself. So what do we learn in this passage? They're really in seed form at the beginning of this first meet and greet. In the Great Commission, Jesus uses two points. Number one, he uses ordinary people who are faithful, available, and teachable. Jesus uses ordinary people who are faithful, available, and teachable. Number two, he uses supernatural power to change people and equip them for service. He uses supernatural power to change people and equip them for service. First, look at ordinary people who are just faithful, available, and teachable. Friends, these early disciples were ordinary common folk. Aside from the Apostle Paul who would come later, these folks are just middle-class working people, blue-collar folk. And yet, these very people, God would turn the world upside down with for Jesus. Listen to Acts 4, verse 13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Friends, if you see yourself as small, weak, and ordinary, that's a good thing. These are the kind of people Jesus uses. Friends, do not overestimate what you think you can do for Jesus and do not underestimate what Jesus can do through you. Aim to be faithful, available and teachable, and let Jesus determine the depth and the scope of how he wants to use you. Number two, Jesus uses supernatural power to change lives, change people, and equip them for service. I love this part in, this John, in John's gospel here. Did you notice how well Jesus knew Peter and Nathaniel before they knew him? Jesus called them by name, even though they had never met before. Jesus would later say in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John would say in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Friends, salvation is a 100% work of God. Start to finish. Michael Arthur, uh, author Michael Reeve says it this way, the gospel is God's kind work of rescue, not his offer of assistance. It is not a call for the strong and good to prove themselves, but for the weak and bad to prove the depths of the mercy of Christ. Redemption is accomplished by Christ alone and needs no topping up from us. Friends, making disciples is the charge Jesus gave even right there in that first meet and greet. What do they do when they encounter Jesus? For example, what did Andrew do when he met Jesus? He went and found Simon Peter, his brother, and brought him to Jesus. Verse 42. What did Philip do once he met Jesus? He went and found Nathanael, his friend, and brought him to Jesus. Verse 45. Brothers and sisters, when we encounter the Jesus of Holy Scripture and come to know him, we are going to want others to know him. That's one of the ways you'll know you're born again. You love Jesus and you want others to love him too. This is what Christians do. Not a few radical people in a Sunday school class. Every Christian 
that wants to be faithful, available, and teachable, wants to make disciples of Jesus. Friends, that's why you and I are still on this planet. What's your purpose? What's your calling? What do you want me to do next with my life? Friends, I don't know the secret will of God, but I know what he's revealed. Make disciples of Jesus. That is God's will for Don. That is God's will for Michael. That's God's will for Lucy. Starting with your kids, then with your family, and the people God's put in your life. Friends, did you know it's one of my job descriptions as a pastor is I do membership interviews for every member who comes into the body? Now look around in this room. This is not everybody that I've had a membership interview with. In the last three and a half years, I have met with, for membership interviews, approximately 160 people. The average membership interview is an hour, sometimes longer. That means I've heard 160 testimonies of how each person came to know Jesus Christ. You could go in the filing cabinet in Jansen's office, you can look through all my pastor notes, and I can tell you this, 99% of the time, there's a small slew of the 1% to the exception, 99% of the time, do you know how people through this church came to know Jesus? Through ordinary people, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, siblings and spouses, friends and Sunday school teachers to lead them to Christ. How will others come to know Christ? Through ordinary people that God uses in extraordinary ways. Brothers and sisters, it gets really simple. What is God's purpose? What is God's will? What does God want to do if I know how sweet and precious and lovely Jesus is? We go and tell. It is our calling and privilege to go and tell. It is God's power that reveals and saves. Let me say that again. It is our calling and privilege to go and tell. It is God's power that reveals and saves. How will Christianity expand throughout the River Valley? How will Christianity expand around the world? Jesus uses ordinary people who have been given supernatural sight to see Jesus as the Lamb of God. Members of CCBC, who will you disciple in 2024? If Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, and he came to take away the sin in us, are we telling others of this good news? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have opened our eyes to see Jesus as the lamb slaughtered and slain for us, to take away our sin guilt and to take away the sin in us. And Father, we praise you that when we do sin, we can remember the blood that cleanses us from all sin. And Father, we're not called to keep all this good news to ourselves. We're called to go and tell. It should be normal and common for every Christian in this congregation to go and tell. Lord, make us bold, make us faithful. Use us as ordinary folk in extraordinary ways to tell people we know that you put in our life this wonderful news. Lord, keep us near the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.